are going to hang out today with our talks called Unexpected Damascus Roads. So let's jump right on in. Uh, for those of us who have been Christians for a while or are familiar with a lot of the New Testament, the Damascus Road immediately calls up a whole bunch of imagery. It's a well-known story about the Apostle Paul and how the Apostle Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. So let's look at one of the retellings of this story. He finds it so important to tell the story that he tells it in more than what, like three, four times at least, um, and in various occasions where he continues to say what happened to him on this road to Damascus. But let's read this retelling of the, the first time when, the first time it happened, rather than just the retelling of it, Acts chapter nine, verses one through 21. Meanwhile, Saul, that's, that's his name, Paul, Saul, okay? Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that's what early followers of Jesus were called, Jesus referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life, so the way. If he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, so just so far right now, in, in the book of Acts and in our story of the Jesus movement. Jesus was crucified, died, resurrected, appeared to a bunch of people, and then the church started, this followers of Jesus started to grow, and the first nine chapters of Acts talk about this movement and story of these followers and how things are, how things are sort of shaking out in Jerusalem and beyond. So Paul has been there, or Shaul, Saul has been there, and he has been not really thrilled with all that's been happening, and has even stood approvingly at the stoning of Stephen, one of the followers of Jesus, to say he didn't like that. So now he's so interested and invested in persecuting these people who are followers of the way that he wants to travel to find more, as though there's not enough of them just hanging around Jerusalem. So he's on his way. As he's going along and approaching Damascus, this is in Syria, still today, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now this is just really quick for our historical geographers. This is happening up probably around north of the Sea of Galilee towards Damascus, maybe near Caesarea Philippi, or maybe it's even closer to Damascus, but he's well far away from Jerusalem, which isn't even on this map, and is south, 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 down towards the Salt Sea in the Judean hills, but towards that same sort of latitude. Okay, so he's on his way there. He gets, something happens to him, he falls to the ground, and he says, who are you, Lord? Like, who's talking to me? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Hananiah. Um, we say Ananias, but his name in Hebrew means the Lord God is gracious, Hananiah. And the Lord, and it's a common name in the Hebrew Bible. Hananiah, the Lord said to him in a vision, Hananiah, and he answered, here I am. Anybody else remember any other people in the Bible who, when God starts to talk to them, they just go, here I am. Isaiah, yeah, 
uh, Abraham, Samuel, like, uh, you know, a whole bunch, right? So Hananiah's got the right answer. Here I am, Hineni in Hebrew, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And at this moment, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Hananiah come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Hananiah answered, uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel, and I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Hananiah went and entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, on the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. And then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who invoked this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? So that's, there's a little bit of our story. We're gonna just stop right there for the sake of time. Please go back and read and reread and reread. And we're going to talk about unexpected Damascus roads. Now, Paul is having this moment, Saul is having a moment on the road. He's walking and he's intent on one thing. He knows that the right thing to do would be to persecute people who are followers of the way, that what they're doing or saying about this person, Jesus, is so abhorrent to Saul that he needs to make sure that they stop, even in places as far away as Damascus, where there are synagogues, where there are faithful Jews, and where there are also faithful Jews who are followers of the way. Notice all those good Hebrew names, right, in the story. Now, a lot of times when we talk about this road experience, we talk about this as though it's the conversion of Saul to Paul. Anybody? This is Paul's conversion story, right? This is the moment he meets Jesus, he's like, got it, I'm gonna convert to Christianity. And we think of this because when we open up Bible apps or our actual Bible, and we just look up on biblegateway.com, Acts chapter nine, the editors have told us that what you are now going to read is Saul's conversion. So get ready, here we go. Here's where Saul is going to convert. Are you ready? Let's read the story of his conversion. Now, I just want you to know that in the original Greek, that bolded Saul's conversion or the conversion of Saul does not exist. That's an editorial aid. I should put that in quotes. Um, to tell you what you should believe and think and frame about what you're about to read. Now, I'm going to argue, as do most biblical scholars, that this is not a conversion story. This has nothing to do with conversion at all. Uh, pa Dr. Paula Fredrickson will say that conversion is a terrible word choice and a poor conceptual fit for two reasons. First, it obscures the strong native linkage and antiquity of ethnicity and cult. Ancient people spoke in terms of assuming new ancestral customs and or of abandoning their native ancestral customs without talking about converting, all right? So it's not the right fit. 
Conversion further implies and presupposes two clearly demarcated and mutually exclusive choices, that either you're moving from the gods of Rome to the God of Israel or from the God of Israel to the God of Rome, because those were the two options. So Paul's affirmation of the Jesus movement moves him from one sort of Jewishness to another. There is no Christianity for Paul to convert to. It doesn't exist. He can't convert. He doesn't think of himself as converting. In fact, Christianity, according to Professor Pinchas Shear, Christianity in its earliest form, that term, Christian or Christ follower, was a politically loaded term, affirming one's loyalty to the Jewish Christ or Messiah rather than to the emperor or the gods of Rome, and to be a Christian meant affiliation with something that was intrinsically Jewish. So it's not a conversion the way we think of it. Now, many of you are like, yes, but didn't God change his name? And this is what I've been told my whole life. Anybody? No? You've not been told this? Okay, God changes his name. Now he will no longer be Saul, Shaul, but now he'll be known as Paul, right? Because he's moving from Judaism to Christianity. So we have to make him a Christian because all the Christians are Gentiles. So we're going to give him a good Latin name, right? We actually don't know how Paul got his Latin name. It's not Greek, by the way, it's Latin. He's born a Roman citizen, he tells us so in Acts chapter 22. It's likely that both Jewish and Roman names were given to him at birth. These are two names he has his whole life. The Greek versions of both, Shaul and Paul, Paulus, are different only by the beginning letter. Even if you can't read Greek, can you see it? Shaul and Paulus, similar to others in the Bible. John, Yohanan, is also known as Marcus. So he has John, Mark, has a Hebrew name, Yohanan, and a Latin name, Mark, Marcus, in Acts. So anybody here have more than one first name? Like maybe a name that was given to you in your culture or language of origin, and now that you're in the United States, you also think Americans are difficult, and I will go by another name also. Both are your names. Similar things happened in the ancient Near East and in the times of Palestine, Israel, and the Roman world. So you had a Hebrew name and you had a Latin name, or you had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. This is common. It's still common today in lots of different settings, and that's what scholars would argue. Nowhere in your Bible, nowhere in your New Testament does it say that God changed his name. So I'm ruining all the sermons you've ever heard about it, but it's just not there. It's just not there. So a lot of scholars will say, well, what should we call this dude then? I mean, he himself will go by Paulus, by Paul, in a lot of the text later. But notice that Hananiah, when Hananiah comes to visit him in Acts chapter 9, he says Shaul. His name's not been changed. He's still going by Shaul. Now, Shaul means, does anybody know what it means in Hebrew? It means asked for. And it's this name that King Saul, the first king that the Israelites asked for way back in the Hebrew scriptures and kings, um, and, first, and actually first Samuel, when they are asking for a king, they're like, okay, well, you asked for it, you get it. His name's Shaul. So he has that name Shaul named after that king. And there were others that were also named Shaul in that time. It was a very common name. Paulus means little. And maybe there's a connection to Paul thinking that he has some sort of minimization within his story. But we really think he probably just had both these names from the very beginning. So when scholars argue about how we should try to understand and hear this, maybe we shouldn't call him the apostle. 
Maybe we shouldn't call him Saint or Saint Paul. Maybe we should call him Shaul Paulus. Or maybe, as many people will do in biblical circles or scholars, they'll also say Rav or Rabbi Shaul. Because there's something that happens, isn't there, when we only understand him as a Gentile or as a Christian, quote unquote, as opposed to a Jew who is continuing and now starting to follow Jesus. Let me just show you for example in a translation, again, BibleGateway.com, free and accessible for everybody. When you go to Bible Gateway and you look at New International Version and then you look up NRSV, they both put up there, here's where he's gonna get converted. But when you go to the complete Jewish Bible, which is written by a messianic Jewish scholar, David Stern of blessed memory, just passed away this last year, he has written a translation of the New Testament, <clears throat> what he calls the Brit Hadshah. He keeps the words that are Hebraic, Hebraic, and he'll say, meanwhile, Shaul, still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's Talmudim, went to the Kohen Hagadol and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, authorizing him to arrest any people we might find, whether men or women who belong to the way, and bring them back to Yerushalayim. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Shaul, Shaul, why do you keep persecuting me? Sir, who are you? Lord, who are I am Yeshua, and you are persecuting me. It sets the whole thing and then remains that story sort of in its initial Hebrew context. And notice that there is no helpful editorial. Now you're going to hear about the time this guy left Judaism and became a good North American white Christian dude. <laughs> but don't take my word for it. Let's take Paul's own words for it. Here's what he says. He's gonna identify for the length and breadth of his career in the church as a leader, in the ecclesia, in the community of followers of Jesus. He's gonna identify constantly as a Jew. Not I was a Jew, I am a Jew. He's gonna say I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. In fact, these are the earliest and I think only writings we have of a Pharisee Jew of this time. He'll say I am a Jew, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I am proudly of the tribe of Benjamin. I stad studied at the feet of Rabbi Gamliel, like I'm a disciple. These are all the things that qualify me to teach and to understand the text. He was deep in and after this moment on the Damascus Road remains deep in his faith and tradition. He'll, here's what he'll say in Philippians. <clears throat> if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the ecclesia, of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Philippians 3, four through six. He continues to say, this is who I am, and these are the things that qualify me to continue to teach and lead in this area. So Shaul Paulos becomes a Jewish, a Jesus-following Pharisaic Jew. He's always been a Pharisaic Jew, but now he's going to be a Jesus-following Pharisaic Jew. He continues to be a Jewish Pharisee called by the grace of Israel's God and called into service to be God's instrument among both Israel and the nations. So why else do we think he converted? Besides the fact that pastors have told you so for a very long time and then they told you about the name change and they made a big deal about it and all those things. Why else do we think that this is, and all the editorial marks? We've all set you up for a very poor understanding of this passage. I think another reason why is because it says that when he gets to Damascus, it says that he does, he gets baptized. And we're like, oh, that's, that's a Christian thing. So now he's doing the baptism. Like I baptize you in the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, backwards dunk. 
right? Do it this way. We often have baptismal pools up front at a lot of our churches. Maybe he even wore a cool robe. I don't know, right? So we have that idea. It says he got baptized. Well, guess what? Ritual immersion, baptism, that's a Jewish thing. That's not something that started by, it was not started at all by Christians. It's something that Jews did all the time. And, and they did it for various reasons. They would do it to convert to Judaism. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to convert, you would take on circumcision, you would make an offering at the temple, and you would do ritual immersion. So maybe that's why we think he converted. He gets baptized. But one reason Jews went into a mikvah, into a ritual immersion pool, was to cleanse themselves from impurity and bodily discharge. What is it that Shaul, Paulus, just experienced that might make him want to go and do mikvah? He had some weird fall from his eyes, right? And we know that if you've ever at all read the Hebrew scriptures, there's lots of rules about cleanliness and uncleanliness and what you need to do and if you, so maybe that. But we also know that ritual immersion or mikvah was to show repentance. How do we know that? Who's one of the first, like we would call him um, the Big Dipper, John the Baptist, right? So, sorry, Rabbi Ari calls him the Big Dipper. Um, (laughs) Or Yochanan the Immerser, right? What is he doing? He's standing at the Jordan River and he's saying, hey, you brood of vipers, Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with righteousness, right? So they go and they do ritual immersion to show repentance. Does Paul have a reason to repent? In Hebrew, to do teshuvah, where you're going one direction and you stop and you turn and you start to go in a different direction? What does Shaul, Paulus, need to repent from? Murder, murder, that's a good reason to immerse, right? So maybe it has to do with a a cleansing and an idea of new life. Maybe it has to do with also the cleansing of his illness. Maybe it does have to do with starting something fresh and being part and, and being immersed under the name of Yeshua and to show that identity. Let's, let's say it's all of it, but it's not conversion. Okay, last of all, let's talk about what's happening on this Damascus road, and I'm gonna argue that he is having a resurrection experience with Jesus. Jesus has shown up to a whole bunch of people, and you read in the book of Acts, he's shown up to 500 here, he's shown up over here to this group, he's shown up in the gospels to people at the end, and now it's Shaul's turn, Paul's turn, to have an experience with the resurrected person person of Jesus. And he needs this experience in order to be a capital A apostle. Uh, uh, You know, that's not actually a Hebrew word, but say like, you know, a key leader in the church, a witness to the resurrection. So as he's on this road, he has an experience. And that experience changes everything. And his experience is with the resurrected Jesus who says to him, why do you persecute me? I am Yeshua, I am Jesus. So now Paul is both physically and spiritually blinded in that moment. He has this crazy blinding bright light. The people who are with him, they hear the voice, but but they don't see anything. And it's everything he's hoped for, isn't it? 
everything he's been praying for, Messiah to come, his whole life as a good Torah-believing Pharisee Jew, Messiah will come. It's everything he's hoped for, and in the very same moment, everything he has believed has fallen, just as he falls to the ground on his knees. Both are true for him at the same time. Everything he'd hoped for, that the Messiah would come, that things would be set to right, it's, it's happened in Jesus, and he's come to now that full awareness. But he's also realized that the way he thought it was going to happen and that the person that he thought it was gonna happen through is completely different than he understood before. Now in all of this, Paul does not stop worshiping the creator God of Israel. But right now on this road, he understands that the God he's always worshiped is acting in and through Jesus. And I think maybe today he might say he's going through some deconstruction. He might start to say, oh, wait a minute. What I've always been told, what I've always thought, what I was so convinced of that I was willing to murder people or at least stand alongside and watch them be murdered or now go and pursue and take captive people for their belief and fellowship of Jesus, of the way, and take them all the way back. All of that, I was so convinced of it. So convinced, I was so right, so zealous. All of that has to go. Can you imagine, maybe you can, that everything you had sort of built your life around, all of the constructs of your faith, the ways that you were sure that you knew that you knew, and all of a sudden you have an experience or experiences that call everything into question. Now we find ourselves, many of us, in North America, in California, in this area, maybe just in this church, in something called deconstruction. At least that's the name a lot of people have given it. You can go and read about it on Wikipedia. We have a whole entry. Faith deconstruction, also known as deconstructing faith, evangelical deconstruction, the deconstruction movement, or simply deconstruction, is a Christian phenomenon where people unpack, rethink, and examine their belief systems. This may lead to dropping one's faith altogether or may result in a stronger faith. Who knows? Good luck, right? Um, And there's no end goal to deconstruction. You just get to do this forever. Have a good time. Somebody should re-edit this Wikipedia article. Um, And there's no end goal, and this person's coining the term, and these people are talking about it. It has a range of meetings, and here's all the people who love it, and here's all the people who ate it, and good luck, okay? And then when you start to search deconstruction, you'll find, what does it even mean? And then you'll very quickly find a whole bunch of people who are like, you should be very, very afraid of deconstruction. Anybody who uses the words deconstruction, if you follow deconstruction Twitter, you are following the primrose path down to hell. And we'd like to tell you about all the ways in which this is deeply troubling. The the Gospel Coalition, which... um, We could talk about their own need for Damascus Road experience, but let's just say right now that they have published an entire book just to try to prevent you from even doing it. Before you lose your faith, if you hear the words deconstruction, run away, right? Um, There's a big, you can see by the political colors that are all there in the ex-evangelical that they're warning you. They're warning you of these these crazy Christians out there who are there to ask a question. Russell Moore, the most dangerous form of deconstruction. That's just in Christianity today. And others, why? We don't need to redeem this. We need to warn people about it. People should be afraid. In fact, I've heard there's this ridiculous church in in the Bay Area. It's called Spark. And that, you should stay away. Stay away from them. We've heard some of you have been warned off. 
because apparently we're deconstructing. I didn't know, but apparently we are. Other people are like, it's fine. You can totally deconstruct. In fact, that's the most holy thing you should do, and you should reject everything that you've experienced prior to this moment. It doesn't mean you're losing your faith, and here's five tips to deal with it, and here's pretty, pretty pictures. We're not gonna do the like, we're gonna, ex-evangelical is lovely. You should totally do it. It's so pretty. We'll have nice stickers and bumper stickers for you. You will now be part of a different club. Leave that other one and come and do this other one now. And then some people will just pity us entirely. My dad taught me how to love them. Those poor souls, they're so far away from Jesus. Let's, there's a whole bunch of people out there praying just for you, okay? So we have all of that. And then they'll say, okay, well, if you've done that, and if you've done that unfortunate deconstruction thing, we'll just start doing a thing called reconstruction. And so some of you are like, I don't know where I am, but I think construction's involved. I don't know what's happening. I don't have a blueprint. I don't even know which part of my house I'm in and I'm supposed to be remodeling, but I've torn down walls and I've, I've tossed out even my favorite, most beloved throw pillows with my favorite Bible verses on them. They've all just gone into the dumpster and now I'm sitting in an empty, crazy, destroyed room. So I should put some things back in, but I don't know what to do. And I feel lonely and disrupted and I don't know which way is north and I'm a little bit confused. Let's go back to Paul for a minute. Shaul Paulus. What if the other reason why this is not a conversion moment for him is because he's actually being called What if the whole Damascus Road experience actually sounds a lot like Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Jeremiah 1, Daniel 10, where there were a whole bunch of other people who also heard a voice but didn't see anything? What if the language, it's true, you guys, it's true. What if what's happening on the Damascus Road is another calling of another prophet? just like God did with prophets of old. And what if, just like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and Jeremiah, Shaul, Paulus, is moving into an experience where, in biblical thought, just as it was for them, heaven and earth are intersecting. Not far off heaven there and far off earth down here, but an experience with the divine on this road that's making everything clear in a way that it wasn't before. What if this is a prophetic call? And that actually does seem to be what most scholars would land on. Paul's not being converted to anything. Shaul, Paulus is not being converted. He's being called. He has a job to do. It says so in the text. God tells Hananiah, hey, you need to go because I have a job for him and he has work to go and do that will be for the nations and for Israel. Just like Isaiah, just like Jeremiah, just like Daniel, just like Ezekiel, who saw that vision of that giant, lovely, sweet ride with the high rims coming down from heaven. An incredible moment. Maybe that's what's happening to Paul And when it happens, did you notice that Paul, from this point forward, is not gonna go back and spend a whole bunch of time in any of his letters or in the book of Acts trying to focus on how ashamed he is for what he did or how he has to tear down all the theology that brought him to that misunderstanding or any of his what-ifs, which I would think, personally, I would spend a lot of what-ifs on Stephen alone. 
maybe what we see in Paul is we start to go, oh, he just goes, oh, now that I've met Jesus, my life has changed forever, and I'm called to share that good news. Maybe this isn't deconstruction at all, or conversion. Maybe you've been called. Maybe you and I have been called to an unexpected Damascus Road experience. Maybe you're starting to go, I think there might be some scales on my eyes. They might be called white nationalism. They might be called patriarchy misogyny. It might be called prejudice. What are the scales that are falling from our eyes that have brought us to this moment of saying, I wanna ask some questions. Maybe it's that Jesus is standing here in front of us saying, I'd love you to see me. I'm not who you thought I was. It's better. So these unexpected Damascus roads, they, they happen throughout the Bible, right? Here we have an unexpected Canaan road. That's where Abraham finds himself. He's like, great, I'm just gonna do this thing. Abram does it for his life. Nope, God shows up and starts speaking. He finds himself on a different road. And maybe, like Jonah, we'll have some unexpected sea tours. These unexpected roads, plural, are happening throughout our biblical text. These disruptions in trying to understand who God really is, what God might really be calling us to do, these should be, these are normal. They should be expected. In the Gospels, Jesus goes and he says, there's a, there's a father, he's like, please heal my son. He's having these fits and he throws himself under the father. If you can, if you can heal him. Jesus says, if I can, don't you believe? And the father says, I believe, but overcome my unbelief. Disrupt it. Meet me here, Jesus. Or after the resurrection, after the resurrection in the Galilee, the disciples are there with Jesus and it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. Something's been disrupted, but it's part of the story. It's not to be avoided, it's to be expected. Augustine said, if we understand it's not God we speak of and to comprehend God is altogether impossible. The apostle Paul says, for now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, and then I will fully know, even as I've been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love remain in these three, these three, and the greatest of these is love. This comes in the context of his beautiful love is patient, love is kind, love is, I mean, just one of the most beautiful passages of scripture, read at weddings appropriately, forever, and generations and generations. First Corinthians 13, and after that beautiful passage, he's like, but I don't really know. I see just a bit dimly, but if you don't know, then you know what you can err on? Err on the side of love. And maybe some of us, what if these roads that we've been on, what if we've not been erring on the side of love? What if we were erring on the side of tribalism or judgment or prioritizing the wrong things, emphasizing the wrong things, thinking that our faith has to get wrapped up in issues of judgment, deciding who's in, who's out, 
I can only be a part of a church that says this, does this, believes this, or I can only, and then when you're pushed up against it, you have a life experience. Maybe you and I were in a faith where we were told that if we did all the right things and we followed God and we did our quiet time and we made sure that everything was right in rows, then all the things would work out for us. And then all of a sudden, somebody we deeply love gets a terminal disease well too young and we have to resort that faith. We have to find out whether or not we can meet Jesus again there. Years ago, a dear friend of mine, her first oldest daughter, was born with a very significant congenital disease. And it was unexpected and difficult. And for almost nearly the first entire year of this little girl's life, we were in the hospital. And my friend, the mom, she is a passionate follower of Jesus. Beautiful worship leader, incredible voice, and her faith had, you know, sort of, she had lived a very good, charmed life up till that moment, and her faith had made all of that make sense. And so we spent a lot of time talking. Hey, we've all prayed, we've had everybody pray. Why isn't she being healed? Why does it seem, why are things getting worse when we feel like they should get better? We've said the right words, we've brought in the leaders of the church with oil, we've done all the things. What's happening? And so we talked a lot. How's Jesus showing up for you in this moment? And she said, he's still here, but he has torn down the image that I had of him. And he's rebuilding himself in front of me. It wasn't a conversion. I don't even think it was a deconstruction. But I think she was moving into a place where some scales were falling off of her eyes. And she was realizing that Jesus was bigger than she had lived that moment, and there was more to understand, more to know. Years and years ago, Kevin and I were in Israel, I think it was like 2003, 2004, or something early on, and somebody was pushing on some very key cornerstones of theology, of Christian theology in the space, and it was good. It was a really good conversation. I don't know if you already know what I'm going to say. But they were sort of pushing on, well, what if Jesus was married? What if he wasn't born of a virgin? What if this? What if that? What if this? And in that moment, Kevin just said, yeah. So then he was like a really great husband, right? <laughs> like, that's very funny. But um, also, I heard him say in that moment, you know, I think I want to follow Jesus no matter what I find out about him. And I thought that that was a really interesting framing and I don't think he meant it this way, but the way I heard it, the way I overheard it was like, I don't need to be afraid to ask questions. I don't need to be afraid to meet Jesus on a Damascus road that I don't yet know because Jesus is bigger than my understanding and Jesus is bigger and can handle all of my doubts and my faith doesn't need to be rejected or, or reworked. I can just continue in humility to say, what if I don't know all of who he is yet. By the way, it's true, I don't. I have a master's of divinity, but I have mastered nothing. And what if there's more to know? What if the deconstruction, the faith journey, what if we really needed to repent from some things in our North American church? I think we did. I think we do. What if we're also being called? Called to share the love that we've experienced in the person of Jesus with everyone we meet, 
What if we're being called to open up the table to everyone? What if we're being called to say justice matters because Jesus loves everyone? What if we're being called to go and suffer with those who are suffering, with the marginalized and the oppressed? What if we're being called to go and speak truth to power? What if these moments of deconstruction aren't things to be afraid of or ashamed of? What if it's a calling? And what if Jesus is talking to you and showing up in front of you and saying, you want to get to know me? I've got, I've got work to do here. So maybe, maybe, we can stop talking about deconstruction and reconstruction and all of the constructing type of things. And maybe we can start talking about Damascus roads. Maybe we can start asking whether or not we're permitted to have gotten it wrong, permitted to repent, and permitted to pursue the Jesus that we continue to meet. And then guess what? Next year we'll have another moment, or next week right, or tomorrow, (laughs) and we'll sort it through again. And maybe when those things happen, when we sit in a service and we go, oh my goodness, I totally thought God changed his name, and now that crazy person told me that that's not true, now what? I'm disrupted again. Do I know anything? What if you just come expecting to be disrupted? Maybe these aren't unexpected Damascus roads, but they're expected. We plan for them. We're like, these are part and parcel to be expected parts of your faith. You and I, as followers of Jesus for the rest of our lives, we should expect to be disrupted. We should expect to have gotten it wrong. We should have expect to have voted people off the island that are right actually in the middle and the center of the island. We should expect to have missed the mark. We should expect to have gotten confused because we're no, are you guys, anyone here think you're better than the disciples, right? And they were confused and they doubted and they didn't understand and they sat in boats going, I think he's talking about bread. When he's like, I'm not talking about bread, right? I mean, he's constantly, they're constantly having to say, I didn't understand. He's like, like all of it, always. And now we have a whole story about somebody who encounters Jesus as he's on his way to go persecute and hopefully bring to capital punishment people who are following him, and he's like, oh, got it. But I'm not gonna spend the rest of my life only talking about everything I did wrong. I'm gonna start moving into spaces where I can tell the good news. What if we get to do that? Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't it be fun to start bringing love and light and the way of Jesus back into what we can know? In part, just a little bit. And we don't need to be afraid anymore. And nobody, you don't need to tell anybody that you're deconstructing. If people are worried for you, praying for you, you're on their list. You can say, no, no, I'm not deconstructing. I've just had a Damascus Road experience. By the way, you should expect them because they're kind of all throughout the Bible. You should expect God to surprise you, God to convict you, and God to give you a calling. I'd like to look at all of you and say, you're called. If you've woken up to some of the things that we deeply need to repent from, and I'm not saying there's not deep church trauma that needs deep repenting from and healing from, 100%. 
But if we've woken up to Jesus still standing in front of us, maybe there's some good news that we might wanna share with ourselves and with others and in this community, and maybe we're called to start doing that good work. The greatest of these is love. I think you guys are gonna do great things after your Damascus Road experiences. And I've decided to stop talking about deconstruction, which just sounds sad, and reconstruction, which sounds like a lot of work. And instead, I'm just gonna focus on the Jesus in front of me and the way of love, the greatest of those things. Amen? Jesus invites all to the table. All are welcome. And we don't say that every week because we want to be progressive or liberal or cutting edge or interesting. We say it because Jesus is inviting all of us into this place, this moment, this time, and welcoming us to this table. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you, and do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Come, all who are thirsty. Come, all who are hungry. The table has been prepared for us. Jesus waits for us here. And all are welcome at this table. The body of Christ given for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.